Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in African American Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I am your host, Adam McNeil. On the podcast today, we have Dr. Tanisha C. Ford, an Associate Professor of African Studies and History at the University of Delaware. Dr. Ford is here to discuss her brand spanking new book, Dress in Dreams, a Black Girl's Love Letter to the Power of Fashion. And Dr. Ford is also here as a part of my HBCU feature series. So welcome to the show, Dr. Ford. How are you? Hi, Adam. Thanks for having me. I'm great. Very good. And, uh, you know, we're, we're very happy to have you on the podcast. You know, your book is, you know, one of the ones that I've really been, you know, excited to see and, and, and even more excited to read. Um, and uh, especially, you know, you know, part of the feature series here. Um, so we'll actually begin talking about HBCUs. And so can you talk to us about how HBCUs have affected your trajectory as a scholar and a writer? Well, I always wanted to go to an HBCU in part because there's such a rich history of attending HBCUs in my family. My grandfather attended FAMU. My aunt, my grandfather's sister, also attended FAMU, and she, in fact, encouraged my grandfather to attend. My grandmother went to Alcorn State, and my mother always wanted to go to an HBCU, and even though she ended up going to a PWI, Indiana University in Bloomington, she really encouraged me to go to HBCUs. And of course, I came of age with Spike Lee's school days. So everybody wanted to go to an HBCU. We all wanted that Black college experience. So when I applied to college, most of the schools I applied to were HBCUs. And that meant a lot to me, especially considering that I was from a small city in Indiana, a stone's throw away from the heart of Ku Klux Klan country. And I just felt like my Blackness had been so stifled and that I, you know, had experienced a certain version of Black culture. You know, there was, you know, part of my life in Fort Wayne, other Black families whose families and grandparents had migrated from Alabama. So it was a particular kind of up South experience, if you will. But I wanted to be in a place like Atlanta or DC, you know, where I was really immersed in Blackness in a way that I hadn't experienced in my hometown. So I filled out all my applications to Hampton, Howard, and Clark Atlanta, and I decided to attend Clark Atlanta University. And I will say that while I did not graduate from Clark Atlanta, my experience there was definitely life-affirming and life-changing, and I'm still friends with many of those folks that I went to school with there. And and I also, um, while reading, noticed that you know one of your uh, relatives, um, I believe it, I think believe it was your aunt. Um, ended up becoming, um, she, she was a teacher in, um, I, I, correct me if I'm wrong, you had a particular relative who went to FAMU and was a teacher um, in Seminole County in Florida. And, um, and, and considering that I literally grew up like within two minutes of that particular area, when I read that, I was like, oh, snap, FAMU and Seminole County? Like, 
that was that was, that was astounding. And and this is why it's always important to like read these books because you never know the connections that you can make with people. Exactly. So that's my aunt Jeanette. She's like the rock star of our family, or at least one of the rock stars of that generation. She's my grandfather's older sister, and she became. Um, a teacher in Seminole County, Florida. She remained in the area after she attended FAMU. And she became the first, what would what we would call today, like a superintendent of schools. Uh, she was like the first black woman to hold that role. It was a time when Seminole County was trying to diversify um, the education system. And they realized that we had to take teachers, but not just... Um, there's that New York background. Mm-hmm, I told you. <laughs> they realized that we, we don't just need teachers in the classroom, black teachers in the classroom. We need to also elevate them to positions of administration. And so my grand my my aunt Jeanette attended this program that trained her to be an administrator. And so she became what we would now call a superintendent of schools. There's been histories and stories written about her in that part of Florida. She was also very good friends with Zora Neale Hurston. And it was actually Zora Neale who encouraged her to join Zeta Phi Beta sorority. So they became sorority sisters. And just to know that you know, that's a part of my family history. Like when my mom told me that, but then when I was actually able to do my own searches and learn more about that history, I was like, wow, like this is really, you know, amazing to know that my family ties to that region, but also an important part of black life. I mean, cause black education, you can't tell the history of black life in America without telling our history with the K through 12 and higher education system. And so, Dr. Ford, with your um, experience in the AUC, you know, at Clark Atlanta, in a particular time frame at which you were um, that, that, that you were there in the late 90s, can you really talk to us about, you know, what about that time frame for you was uh, was generative for, for your future in, in really this, this space of fashion and history and activism? When I left Fort Wayne for Clark Atlanta. I just had this very transformative experience in my honors English literature course. We read an essay by Gloria Naylor, and it was about her first time ever being called a nigger by a white classmate. And so she explains that she had heard this word before, like other iterations of it, like nigga, you know, in her neighborhood. But she she went home to ask her mom, mommy, what does nigger mean? You know, and the fact that we read something like that in high school, it was one of the first things that I read that made me feel um, a connection to myself, that that literature was for me, you know? And so I decided to be an English literature teacher in high school. I was going to be a high school English liter- literature teacher. So when I went to Clark Atlanta, that's what I had in mind. I became an English lit major. I joined and cre- actually helped to create this organization of first year English lit majors And it was me seeing that there was a radical aspect to Black literature. And I studied so much. I read Zora Neale Hurston, James Baldwin, Audre Lorde. I mean, the list just goes on. I just, to take classes that were all about African-American and Afro-Caribbean literature was amazing. So my mind was being open in that way uh, in terms of my studies. 
Then I became really social on campus. I joined my dorm step team. You know, that was everything, too. Like, mm-hmm. you know, the a- AUC step shows are a big deal during homecoming. So there was this very rich and lively social life on campus and in the surrounding campuses in the Atlanta University Center. So it felt like there was always something going on. And then, of course, just hip hop was exploding in that moment when I came to campus. Lauren Hill's The Miseducation of Lauren Hill was the album. Within weeks of that release, there was also Jay-Z's Hard Knock Life Volume 2 and Outkast Equimini. And all those artists came to the local record store on campus. And it was so it was this like amazing cultural moment where you're surrounded by hip hop and R&B and so much Black South hip hop in particular. But what I realized was that I was not prepared for the fashion on campus, okay? Those folks were not playing where clothes were concerned. I mean, everybody had designer everything, it seemed. I was learning about all sorts of high-end designers I had never even heard of before. In the book, I tell this story of seeing this girl who was in one of my classes strutting the class with her stiletto heels and her tight-fitted jeans and this shirt that was by a brand called Moschino. I can say it now, but back then I had no... I was like, what does that say? Is that Machino? Machino? Like, what is this brand? You know? And so that was it. Like you, if you were going to be at an HBCU and particularly a school in Atlanta, you had to be sharp. Your clothes had to be on point and I had no such wardrobe. And so it was like this huge fashion education. That's when I first learned about Mac makeup. I learned about how to arch one's eyebrows and how to fill them in with a Mac brush, like all this stuff that these beautiful women who seemed to be so much more advanced than I had taught me. So it was like this this time of both feeling liberated, looking around a campus and in the surrounding community and only seeing Black people. That was something I was experiencing for the first time in my life. Even though I went to predominantly Black schools, you know, Indiana was very segregated. Still, there was nothing like seeing this display of Blackness and the SWATs, the area of Southwest Atlanta that Clark Atlanta is in. So it was amazing in that way, but it was also this way where I felt a little out of sorts. Like I didn't belong. I didn't have the fancy clothes. And I also didn't come from this very posh Black family, which I saw a a dynamic of Black class politics and respectability that I had never seen up close before in that way. I mean, people in Fort Wayne, where I'm from, we're not really that fancy. We're just like everyday, regular Black folks, you know? And some of these Black folks I was going to school with, oh, my dad's an attorney, Uh, my dad's a judge, my mom's a a doctor, Uh, my, my cousin is, you know, a leader of the NAACP. You know, it was just these amazing Black families with these long histories. And I just felt like I didn't fit in. I wasn't in a chapter of Jack and Jill. I didn't participate in a cotillion. So it was this tough time, you know, your late teens, early 20s, where you're trying to figure out who you are as a person and you're being exposed to this range of Blackness and trying to find your space. And so for that, though, I'm grateful because it stretched me in amazing ways in such a short period of time. 
And it also reminds me of my experiences at FAMU in, um, you know, in 2010. And, you know, I'm, you know, from the South, family from the South and grew up in Florida. And yet when I went to Tallahassee for just even orientation, I was like, I, I was befuddled. I was like, are we from the same state? Because I have some of the dances, some of the, like, like the whole thing was just different. And yet I'm coming from the same state and it just shows you like how important, you know, regionality is like, and, and I also learned very quickly. Uh, hence why I always ask like when people say, Oh, I'm from Atlanta. And I'm like, are you really from Atlanta? Because, uh, you know, because, because I learned while at FAMU from the, the, you know, swarms of folks coming from the Atlanta, you know, general area, there is a difference between being from actual the like actually from Atlanta and the counties that make up the city versus outlying areas. Um, so so you know it's in- so interesting about how you know just like in many places, but HBCUs provide you know multifaceted uh, 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 levels of education, um, and and at least from your experiences, it definitely showed you know the difference between what you would call like Indiana when you called it the Upper South versus you know the Deep South, right? In, in this uh, late nineties, early two thousands moment, right? Yeah, and it's especially because those campuses are really a reflection of the diaspora in so many different ways. So that was, too, one of the earliest moments where I went to school with people who were from Los Angeles, the Bay Area, Detroit, Chicago, uh, New York City, like every borough, but also places like New Rochelle and Yonkers, people from Memphis and New Orleans and the Caribbean. And so it's like, it's Atlanta, but it's also this microcosm of the Black diaspora as well. And so you could see how those things come together on a campus in this very unique way, in ways you perhaps wouldn't see anywhere else. And I think a perfect example of that for me is when Juvenile's Back That Ass Up came out and everybody was playing that song. We all went, yes, Back That Ass Up. You you playing in your dorm room, all the clubs were playing it. But then people from Cali we're teaching us how to crip walk. So folks are crip walking off back that ass up, right? Like, I mean, wow. <laughs> that's like, you know, we're not twerking off. Yeah, people were twerking, of course. But like, yeah, oh, we can, we can, we can see walk off of back that ass up. So to me, that is just an example of what HBCUs do. They bring black folks together from across the diaspora and create this new culture that exists on that campus. So those types of memories were really significant, like hearing oh, what we called a particular hairstyle and then hear a girl from the East Coast say, oh yeah, that's a doobie. You know, and it's like, oh, a doobie? Like, okay, I've never heard that language before, but it's the same hairstyle that we were rocking in Indiana, just with a different name. And so to come into such close proximity with Black folks from all different walks of life, that's to me one of the greatest things that HBCUs offer. You get to really see the diversity and the beauty of your people. <laughs> Absolutely. And and you truly, truly do. Um and actually, you know, to, to even segue uh, briefly, um, you know, one of the things that I, I've been really interested in, especially uh, getting introspective about um, my own work and my also my experiences. And also, I don't I didn't even let you know before you're actually this is the first 
I guess, memoir-esque book that I've actually interviewed a person for. So this particular question is going to be the first time I've actually ever asked it about a book in this way. So go you. Um, What was different about the writing process for this book, Dress and Dreams, versus your first book, Liberated Threads, Black Women, Style, and the Global Politics of Soul? What was the difference in the writing process for both books? It was all, both books are, they're very different. They're very different books and thus the processes behind them are very different. For example, that story I just told about Back That Ass Up, that wouldn't have been a part of Dressed in Dream. I mean, excuse me, that, let me repeat that. We can edit this. So, mm-hmm. for example, the story I just told about Back That Ass Up, that wouldn't have made it into Liberated Threads, but that could be a central story in Dressed in Dreams. So the thing I loved about writing Dressed in Dreams is that the writing process was multifold. So the first step was for me to find out or discover what was my voice, like Tanisha the woman, you know, Tanisha the woman who was once a Black girl. What does she write like when she is not trying to operate within the strictures of the academy and what the academy recognizes as legitimate or um, legible? And so I I spent a summer just reading and writing, but writing very personal things, you know, just writing personal stories or writing as a particular character, just to see like, what are my skills? What what does my voice sound like? How how do I make words dance on the page? So that was one part of it. And then the other part of it was really thinking about, well, what was I wearing over the course of my life that were really the standout garments? And then what stories do I have to tell around those garments? Because those stories were going to be what really created the backbone of the book. And then from there, the process started to look a bit more like it did for my first book, which was I, I worked with a very closely with one of my research assistants, and we started to do a deep archival dive into Black fashion and lifestyle magazines of the day, from Jet and Essence and Ebony to uh, Vibe and Honey Magazine. And then we were also looking at mainstream publications like Women's Wear Daily, which is, of course, a noted women's fashion publication, and also Vogue and Teen Vogue and those sorts of publications to see, well, what were the national, if not global fashion trends? And how does my story of getting dressed and the clothes that I was wearing map onto that larger story? And then the third piece of this would be interviews that I conducted with people, but I didn't stick to the typical or traditional oral history format that I normally did with my first book, Liberated Threads. Instead, this time, I mostly recorded myself having a conversation with people where they would tell me their stories about a garment or a hairstyle. For example, I had amazing conversations with Professor Tiffany Gill about the jerry curl. And we just both went back and forth sharing all of our memories about the jerry curl and like the cultural impact of the jerry curl. And talking with her helped me remember certain things about that style for my life and why it mattered and why it mattered to people in Indiana where she was from New York City. And so she could tell me that story from a different vantage point. And she's also a couple years older than me. And so she was a little bit older when that hairstyle first became popular. So it was mixing those things. It was like taking 
methods that I have been trained to use as a historian and then remixing them a bit to make them more engaging and fun for me as a researcher to do. And then the last part I did was reach out to people on social media. Like I would just make a post. I'd show a picture, for example, and say, what do they call this shoe where you're from? And people would just respond like, oh, this is what we called it. This is what we called it. You know, and so I got to see some of these regional differences. So here's the same garment that we can all agree was very popular, but here are the different names we called it. So for example, there is a chapter that's on the Nike Cortez. And I never grew up calling that shoe a Cortez. We called it Dope Man's. Mm -hmm. That's just what it was. You know, we linked it to the gangster rap, NWA, all that stuff. Dope Man, Dope Man, that whole song, that moment in hip hop culture. But other people called it, you know, Gangsta Nikes, G Nikes, um, Los Nikes de Cholo, um, Milkshakes. (laughs) <laughs> three strikes, three strikes, bullet nikes. Like it, everybody had a different name for it. But what was interesting to me was that all those names had to do with the hood. They had to do with with gangs. They had to do with street life. You know, so that's what that shoe represented. So I wanted to know why did we call that shoe that? Why was it so much associated with street life? So to be able to tell those stories for me gave Dressed in Dreams a different feeling. And it's one that's way more intimate of a read than Liberated Threads. Even though I love Liberated Threads, it's it's still um, a book that I enjoy presenting on. And I love hearing people say they teach that book. And it's very significant for me as a researcher to be able to write something that was rich and that pulled from archival material and interviews on three different continents. But this book is just far more personal. That element of memoir mixed with the fashion history, mixed with cultural criticism, gives this book a different feel. And what I love now is that I'm able to move back and forth through both of those different styles. I feel like writing these books has made me a writer with some range and a researcher with some range, you know, so I now feel like I can write in a variety of styles. And so for me as a professor, that's something that I want to teach my grad students as well. Like, here's how you can write with a range of voices. And all of those voices are important. And it's really cool to be able to see because for me, uh, reading um, your, your your chapter, especially about the Nike Cortez, because I remember you know owning uh, my brother and I owning like a pair or two of Nike Cortez, and you know every now and again we would always think about um, like you know what what people call things, right? You know some people, um, you know like when we eat grits, like for some grits, you don't put no sugar in it. For some, you do. For some people with sugar and spaghetti. I was like, oh, I didn't know that. And so it's just like, you know, same food. And and so and so to me, like the whole aesthetic of like, you know, uh, of, you know, just just culture within uh, within, you know, within black folks, within diaspora, within African-Americans, it it really made me think um, a lot about. The, the the differences that we have um and, and also just like you said what we call things um but then also what you just said illuminated a lot to me about finding your voice and and finding not only your voice but the different voices that you can 
that you can author with. And I really think that for the graduate students out there who are listening, I think that's a really important thing and being able to access that in the classroom and not be um, shy about it, I I think is a really important example that you've just provided to folks. Thank you. Yeah, I really, when I go back to teaching in the fall, I I want to really start thinking about a class that I could teach on autobiography and memoir so that students can first, of course, read amazing autobiographies and memoirs written by um, Black luminaries and also everyday Black people that perhaps you wouldn't have ever heard of had you not read this book. Um, But I want them, too, to think about how they could use memoir as a tool. So I would love it to be like this twofold course where we're reading these books, but then we're also learning how to write in this voice and learning the art of writing in that way. Because I think that for me, what I found was that to write memoir, you're blending so many other genres. I think really good memoirs, autobiographies, and even biographies, they should tell a a history. So that means you have to do some research to really be able to situate your story within a larger moment. So that gives the students a chance to do that archival dig, you know, to figure out how to tell that history. But then there's also this element of creative writing, where to me, to write a memoir with a voice that really shines, you have to tap into that that creative writing voice. And so for me, I read a lot of Jessamyn Ward, Toni Morrison. I read um, uh, some things by Audre Lorde, you know, just to try to get that voice that people who move back and forth between fiction and nonfiction, like how do they do that thing? And how do they make those voices, you know, have a distinction, but also have like a poetry to them? And I think that learning how to do that as a graduate student will not only prepare you to write in different voices for different audiences, but it allows you to tap into a part of yourself that I think oftentimes the academy doesn't encourage one to tap into, particularly in the field of history, because we're supposed to be so objective. You know, you're supposed to keep the personal out of the work, even though I I don't think that that is possible. Uh, But that's that's the training. So I want my history grad students in particular to explore this type of methodology and also this style of writing, to care about writing and the art of writing. And and I think that's something that so many people are going to, and like I said, graduate students especially, are really going to be able to love about your classes because, um, you know, sometimes you feel stifled. Some Sometimes you feel that, you know, especially as a Black graduate student, that people, you know, like that your experiences don't matter in, in connection to the, your work. Um, and so it, it's it's amazing to to hear that you are you know not only you know you've written the book and you know it's, it's it's your you know it's an important book and also thinking about how you know you're writing yourself into the canon of black literature and black autobiography um, and, and and you know you know you I think reference this in the in, in the acknowledgments but this 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 book you said was kind of accidental was that. Was that what I read? <laughs> yes, I call this book my oops, baby. 
because I didn't intend to write it. You know, I thought after I wrote Liberated Threads, I've said all I have to say about fashion and style. Because for me, I first and foremost consider myself a historian of the Black freedom movement. So I was always just looking for ways to tell that story, to tell the story of our fight for freedom in the years that we've now come to call the civil rights and Black power movement years. So for me, I thought that the dress piece was just an underexplored element of that history, which would allow us to see how movements function on the everyday level. So how are everyday Black women, as well as entertainers, fashion designers, models, college students across the diaspora, how are they in conversation about their dress bodies and how reimagining a Black aesthetic is a way to imagine what freedom looks like and to be able to claim that freedom. So dressing as a particular form of world building for Black women. So I thought, hey, I'd written that book. I was going to go on to the project, which I'm, I'm working on now, but I was, I was thinking I was going to immediately go into that project. And then an editor approached me and said, have you ever thought about writing a book on style for a general audience? And I was like, well, kind of, sort of, but not really. And even though it was a moment where a lot of academics were starting to move into trade publishing, and so it would have been sexy to have this trade book, I was a little reticent. And it's because I thought, well, if I write another book on style, I'm going to forever be the fashion lady. Like, that's going to be it. That's how people remember me, even though I feel like my work has many more facets to it. I felt like that would be my identity. And I was a little wary of that. I thought, I don't know if, if this is the path I want to take. And so it was a lot of prayer and meditation, you know, to think, even think about writing this book. And so then I started to draft the proposal. And at that time, Obama was still president. And... So I was like, okay, yes, this is going to be a very Black Lives Matter oriented book and, you know, so on and so forth. And then Trump happened. Mm -hmm. And then I was like, oh, hell no. I don't even want to write this book. I do not want to write this book. I don't want it to come out in a Trump era. I don't even know what I want to say or have to say in a Trump America. Like, I just, uh -uh, I don't I don't even know. So it took me even longer because I stopped working on the book because I was like, how do I reimagine this thing? And do I want to reimagine it? So after several starts and stops. Finally, this book became a thing and it became a, a baby that I loved. And it was fun because I was writing this book and I was also writing the essays for the Kwame Brathwaite Black is Beautiful book at the same time and interviewing Brathwaite and his family and the Grandassa models and working with the folks over at Aperture to curate his photographs and produce that book. So I was doing these two books that weren't traditional academic books. And I was writing them in conversation with one another. And again, that was another way that kind of stretched me as a writer and a thinker, just the capacity to work on two books simultaneously. So it was a book I never imagined writing, but it's a book I feel really fortunate that I was able to write. And already just seeing how this book is moving in the world and how Black women and girls and non-binary films are responding to it means so much to me. And it's and it's exceptional because you know I I um I've, I noticed also in your acknowledgments um, that you know you had a whole you know swath of amazing uh, folks who you know look like they were they were your real good support system and such and also makes me think about you know the intellectual communities that 
books get produced in. Um, so could you highlight for us um, any uh, particular communities of, of writers um, that, that really helped this book come about? Because I know that you had mentioned the um, the oral histories and such that, that you had written, and we're going to talk about your, your mother um, soon. But can you talk about the intellectual community that helped to produce uh, Dress in Dreams too? You know, it's so amazing because one another thing that this book allowed me to do is reimagine what an intellectual community is because a lot of the people who were the backbone of this book were friends that I grew up with in high school, uh, in grade school, friends I went to college with, people who exist outside of the academy, people who wouldn't consider themselves writers even, uh, people who perhaps might not consider themselves intellectuals, but whose own memories hold a multitude of intellectual thought, of ideas, of theory, et cetera. So I'm really thankful to my friends from Village and Village Woods Middle School. I'm thankful for my high school friends, um, both Wayne High School and also St. Paul School. I mean, these are people who really came through and shared their stories of me, but also of the time, you know, like their memories of the time. And a lot of what they said was so insightful and so helpful that it gave me these nuggets to go explore further in the archive. So there's that community community. There's also my family, primarily my mom and my dad, who shared so many family stories with me, but also my you know extended family of aunts and uncles and cousins, who I'm grateful for. And then there's my community of writers. So I'm really grateful to Joan Morgan, who came in in the clutch and helped me reimagine a particular chapter. I think it's the chapter on baggy jeans and how to tell that chapter in a way that really illuminated an important story that I was originally going to leave out of the book. Akiba Solomon, who I really think is like black editorial girl magic, you know, who came in and offered, she read the whole book for me in draft form. Brittany Cooper, Treva Lindsay, Jessica Johnson, Darnell Moore. I mean, those folks read early chapters, really talked to me about the emotional aspect of digging deep in your life. Because once you start digging into your past and you start telling these very deeply personal and emotional stories, you have to figure out, well, what am I going to do with all of this now? That's just sitting on this table. Like, what do I do with these emotions that I've now conjured up? that have now taken on a life of their own. And so I had people who had done that kind of work who were able to talk me through that process. And how do you bring these things into the world and then give yourself to strangers who are reading some of your most intimate moments on the page. So I'm grateful for them. Um, I'm grateful for people like Erica Dunbar, who really helped me figure out how to do this thing in, in terms of like, the publicity around it, how to put together a book tour, how to speak to a public audience, because just like writing that book is different, speaking for two general audiences is a different art form. So she was really helpful in that way. I mean, just so many people. And then, of course, this past year, as I was finishing this book, I was on a fellowship at the Radcliffe Institute at Harvard, and I met amazing people, amazing writers like Minjin Lee and Evie Shockley, uh, filmmakers like Jatavia Gary and um, E.J. Hill, who was an amazing visual artist. I mean, those folks, just hearing them talk about their practice, 
definitely informed my writing and the ways I thought and how I approached theory, but then made theory manifest through creative nonfiction. You know, I, I, I wrote down um, Darnell Moore earlier in the interview because um, I read No Ashes in the Fire, Coming of Age, Black and Free in America. Uh, I, I finished it about a year ago um, when I was uh, in Philadelphia uh, for a couple of days. And that book was like, shit, like th- this this book right here is like dynamic. And it, it and along with reading a couple years before, um, Michael Denzel Smith's uh, a memoir and, and and just reading and, and just trying to just like so it's like as I'm trying to become a better writer I'm going to memoir and, and, and literature like I literally just spent like 150 dollars don't talk about mom uh, a worth of a buddy on uh, on black lit and such because um, that was not something that I read and also I, I not not that I felt deprived but more so because now that I'm uh, 20, I'll be 27 next month. And, you know, thinking about who I want to be as a writer and such, and, and be able to craft and, and to be able to get very much into my interior. Um, I really thank y'all for providing this, uh, the, the methodology, the space, the, 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 um, the, and really honestly being bold because getting introspective like this in, in the public that's that's not easy, and, and and so I really appreciate y'all for 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 providing this the, the model uh, for folks like myself and, and those coming up because um, you know as you know obviously graduate school can be isolating and so sometimes being able to write not just in your academic voice can be very much liberating. Exactly. Yeah, I found such freedom in writing this and you are right. I mean, there's just been a spate of black memoir published by young black activists of various genders and sexual orientations. And I've tried to devour as much of it as I could, you know, whether it is reading them in the more traditional ways or, um, listening to them on audiobooks. So I listened to uh, Patrice Cullors' book, Darnell's book, um, Michael Denzel Smith. I think I read his book, um, but also um, Michael Arsenault. I listened to his book on audiobook. Asha Bandele's The Prisoner's Wife, Taraji Henson's book, Around the Way Girl, uh, Amy Schumer, Tina Fey, Amy Poehler, uh, Pearl Klieg, all these people, I was just listening to their books or reading their books and to see how they do what they do. You know, how do they find that voice? How do they tell a story? How do they set up a story? Um, actually, one of the ones I really liked, I read Aisha Tyler's book. Mm-hmm. And I didn't think, I didn't know what to expect going into it. I mean, she's a comedian. I think she's insightful. She's a filmmaker. She's a a political thinker. But this book, the way she brings together this narrative and like the type of kind of snark that she uses mixed with dark humor. I mean, it was really a model for how you can create a tone for a book and keep that tone 
across an entire book. I mean, it was artful in that way. I went back to Joan Morgan's When Chicken Heads Come Home to Roost and just felt the bounce and the energy and the hip hop beat that really undergirds that book. I read Jessamine Ward's The Men We Reap and wheat, really. I mean, just to see how she wrote her family's history with such care. And that was one of the things I really try to bring to my book, because there are moments where I'm telling very sensitive history, stories that aren't centrally mine. So like my parents' story, my aunt's story, those are things that have impacted my life, but they aren't necessarily my story. So how do I tell someone else's story with a degree of care? And I feel like Jessamine Ward allowed me uh, to learn a way to do that through the model that she puts forth in The Men We Read. And, and that's actually a great segue because um, I, I want to talk about your, your, your mother um, and, and, and also talk about, you know, you just said, how do you tell a story that's not yours? But how did your family, because I'm, I'm, I guess I'm being presumptuous with this, but um, did they read the book before it was published? Um, and, and with that, uh, the second part of that question is, um, did they learn anything new about you, Dr. Ford? Did they learn anything new about their daughter? <laughs> well, with my mother, I read a lot of it to her out loud when it was in manuscript form and then also when it was bound, like a bound galley. And I read it to her out loud. And that was so intimate to have my first book reading, if you will, be with my mother and reading sections of the book to her about her, like me reflecting on her and our relationship. Because there's chapters, particularly in the Baggy Jeans chapter, where I go into all of the tension between my mother and I that had been building since I was an early teen, because my mother was a police officer in the community I grew up in and she was a dare officer and she was my dare officer, which meant that she was coming into my classroom every week and teaching my friends and I about how to say no to drugs, you know? And she was also that officer who worked security at all the skating parties and so on and so forth. So there was a way that she was so tied to my social life as a young girl that I, and she was beloved by everyone in our community. People, oh, I love Officer Ford. I want Officer Ford to be my mom and all those things. So it was just stifling in many ways for me. So it it comes to a head when I'm in high school and I leave home to go to a boarding school in New Hampshire and I'm writing about that and I'm writing about my own dark emotions and the, some of the struggles I'm having as a young girl trying to find myself, you know, in this community that I feel like doesn't really understand me, doesn't really get me. And so we read those pieces together and, you know, I, I read it out loud to her and I cried. There were so many moments where I cried just reading these things out loud to her. Um, and with my dad, we had had a similarly intimate moment before this book, because leading up to this book, when I was really trying to figure out how to write personal history and do this blend of the personal with this larger scale history, I wrote a piece for Elle magazine called The Ghost of 808 East Lewis Street, which is really about this house that my dad grew up in that was the home base for all of these Black migrant families from Alabama who are relocating to Fort Wayne, Indiana, and how my grandparents died violently in that house, and how several decades later, three uh, immigrant boys from East Africa, from they, they move into that house, and they are 
killed brutally in that house as well. So I was writing about these overlapping patterns of migrations that are bringing different communities of Black people into the same house. So I had to do a really deep dive into my dad's personal life in order to write that story. And I interviewed several of his siblings and cousins to write that piece. So my dad and I had already built that intimacy and that trust around me telling his story and his family story. So with this book, he pretty much gave me free reign to just tell his story as I saw fit in the book. And I don't know if he's read it. I know both of my parents have the book, but I don't know if they've read it independent of me and me talking about it or reading passages of it to them. But I would be excited to hear what they have to say. I think my mom would be less surprised about things that are in the book because she and I, at this point in life, we talk about girl talk, dating and sex and romance and, you know, all those things. I don't think that she would necessarily be shocked, but oh, if my dad reads some of those Atlanta stories, (laughs) (laughs) might be like, oh, well, oh, so this is what was going on. Oh, okay. (laughs) Yeah, but my parents are both pretty liberal, so I can imagine that you know they'll they'll take it in stride. Yeah, and and, <laughs> and that was the part. The early chapters of the book I thought were fascinating because seeing how you were raised and seeing the relative freedom that they provided you, maybe in comparison to some of your peers, and how you were able to express yourself. Um, I, I really thought that that was eye-opening in, in providing a, a particular lens about um, uh, politics, about family dynamics, and, 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 and in large ways, you're sticking to your political underpinnings, right? Um, especially when you talk about your, your mother's um, experiences um, at Indiana University. Um, and, and her activism and and the the hair uh, choices especially too um, and and I was also very much fascinated by just the importance uh, and really how hair impacted pretty much that was that was the connecting thread uh, if you will um, throughout the book um, at least that I saw um, and it also makes me think about um, in, in one of the the other questions I had of who is your style icon? Mm, yeah, so I think in many ways, my mother is my style icon. And I think that that helps me to pull together all these amazing things that you've just put on the table. Because in the book, I describe my parents as dashiki parents. And the first chapter of the book is actually titled Dashiki. And so I give a, a history of that garment, but I also try to tell that history through telling the politics, the history of the politics and the ideas that are associated with that garment in order to say then how different were my parents from other of their peers growing up in the same time period who weren't politically oriented in the same way and how that political orientation, particularly my mother as a black feminist and a black nationalist and my father as like this new left thinker, um, how those things really created a tone for how they would raise me. So I was raised by these very liberal parents who had more relaxed ideas about gender identity, Um, about sexuality, about um, religion. Like I I grew up in a church, 
But I wouldn't necessarily say my dad definitely wasn't religious. And my mom wasn't really religious either. I mean, I just feel like I would love to actually talk to her. I I haven't actually talked to her about this, but I would love to know why did we go to church every Sunday? Because she wasn't this super religious person. We weren't just studying the Bible at home. We weren't at Bible study and Sunday school and all those things all the time. But we did go to regular Sunday service all the time. I like to say she did it because she loved to wear the clothes. She loved to dress up. She loved to get ready for church and to go into church and style out, you know, which I think is definitely a part of the history of black church and black churching, right? Mm -hmm. To get dressed up in your finest wear and go to church. So for me, she was a model for all of these things, how the politics are tied to the garments how you can create a style and a form of self-expression that makes you stand out from a crowd, how you can develop the kind of inner confidence that allows you to wear whatever you want, wherever you want. And I think that it's because of that orientation as a young girl that makes me drawn to other people who I've now come to look at as style icons like Rihanna, because Rihanna in many ways is just as bold and unapologetic as my mother was when I was growing up, you know, so I'm attracted to other folks who have that kind of audacious personality that shines through in their clothes. And when it's undergirded by a politic, whether that be a politics about gender politics about race, what what they people are imagining freedom imagining freedom looks like. That are that is like the basis for me of a style icon. It's somebody who has a vision for something larger than themselves, but that lives on their own body. So my mom was the first model of that for me. And she did so in a space that was very conformist. I mean, Fort Wayne is called the city of churches. I mean, and it's called that for a reason, not only because there's a church on every corner, but because a Christian ethos guides so much of how that town operates, that alongside the very regimented and structured aspect of a factory town, like it meant that this was a very conformist, conservative space. And my mom was neither of those things in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, now. I mean, she's just a, the epitome of a free Black woman. And that's perfect. And, and it also makes me think about, you know, the freedom going back to the freedom of writing. And um, if, if you if you if you can, two more questions I have if you got if you got the time, if you got the time, two more questions. <laughs> All right. So was there a chapter more difficult to write than the rest? You know, that is a really great question. And I feel like there were several challenges for different Reasons. So if you indulge me, Mm -hmm. I want to think through this question because it's the first time I've been asked this question, but it's really an important one. So I think the hardest chapter to write emotionally was the baggy jeans chapter and then the, the chapter that immediately follows called Coochie Cutters. And it's those chapters were really difficult because I talk about going off to boarding school and why I was trying to flee Fort Wayne. And it was really hard to dig up all of those old traumas and hurts as to why, you know, I wanted to leave this place and what it was doing to me emotionally, psychologically, and how the only way I knew to get free was through my smarts. Um, but then while I was there, I, I went home on a, on a winter break <clears throat> And I actually, you know, reconnected with a a young man I was dating before I left. I ended up getting pregnant. And so then it was like, 
or how do I reconcile this new life that I've created for myself in New Hampshire um, with this now pregnancy that I'm hiding and the what that could do to my future, this new future that I've just been able to imagine for myself. And ultimately in the next chapter, you know, I come home and now I'm a mom, you know, and I'm a teenager and I'm like grappling with what it means to be extremely bright, but now back in this hometown, but back in this hometown with a major responsibility, you know? And so those two chapters kind of tell that story arc. And that's a story arc that, uh, I mean, I've told, of course, in my personal life with friends, I mean, they've heard this you know, but it was the first time that I ever written something like that and shared those stories publicly and connected the, the folks who knew me from boarding school to the people who knew me from back home and the people who would come to know me after as colleagues, but didn't perhaps know all the intimacies of that thing. It was like me putting it all on the table and even talking with my son about it and him hearing his own origin story in new ways. So I think that those chapters were probably the most emotionally difficult to write. I think that the chapter, though, on Leather Jacket, the one with my mother, that was probably the hardest to write structurally because that one makes a lot of different jumps in time. And so I was trying to use the closet at that point in the story as a portal to move us back and forth between time, to bend and fold time. And I think that that's a hard thing to try to do. I mean, it takes a certain kind of skill as a writer to do. And I kept getting it wrong and getting it wrong and, you know, needing my editors and other gracious friends to kind of step in and help me figure out how to create the structure for that, because it's such a loving story. It sets up my early relationship with my mother and the love and adoration I had for her as a young girl. And so I needed readers to really feel how much I love this woman and why I loved her, because I was going to take them on a very rocky journey of our relationship. And those teen years, those two chapters, the baggy jeans and coochie cutters chapters, like it gets really rocky between mom and I. And so I needed them to understand that love in order to understand why it all falls apart. And so I needed that chapter to structurally be right. And I don't know if I nailed it completely, but I know that I at least got close enough to this thing that I was trying to do in that chapter. And at least to me, um, <clears throat> at least to me, I think that you really, you really touched on so many of the dynamics and also seeing the dynamics of a daughter of a black daughter and a black mother and those particular dynamics, especially um, after your parents uh, separated too, and seeing like that connection and, and the, the frictions that, that came about um, as a result. And so it's, it's a very striking um, uh, example of, you know, of, of a family dynamic, I would, I would say too. Um, and it also makes me think about even an additional question too, about, because in your hoodie chapter, um, that's the one where you talk about, you know, police brutality, you talk about activism, you talk about protest. And, you know, was that, was there ever, um, if I, if I may, of course, was there ever a time where, you know, you had to, you know, it, you know, we, when we really had to deal with that particular friction of where, you know, the, the police brutality element comes and, you know, brushes up against your own personal, uh, family history, if I may. You know, it's it's really interesting because so th when you bring up my parents' separation, I mean that was definitely a critical uh, 
me say that whole part again. We can edit this. I really appreciate you bringing up my parents' separation because that was also another critical point in the story. It's like, how do I tell the story that's very much about my mother and my relationship without having my father fall completely out of the picture? Because even after they divorced, they were both still so integral to my life. And it is really because of the foundation that they gave me and the ways that they supported me once my son was born that allowed me to go on to do all these um, very, I think, admirable things in my life, you know, and it, I didn't do those things alone. And so it was important for me to tell that story because for one, my story of being a young mom, it doesn't ma match this very stereotypical story that we tell in the mainstream about what it means to be a teen mom, you know, and I, I'm really grateful to my parents and other members of my community who really, you know, surrounded me with love and resources and support and who were babysitters and big sisters and big cousins to my son, you know? And so it was important for me to tell that story as I'm also telling the story about garments. This is a story about community. And so that's what to me helps make the chapter about police brutality all the more poignant because that is a story about community activism, community mobilization, and how black people, whether we are blood kin or not, show up for one another and stand in the gap for one another and how it's often black women and black queer women who are on the front lines of those efforts. So for me, it was like coming full circle to tell that story and to talk about my mother who was a police officer a police officer with a very radical politic, you know, who insisted upon living amongst the people that she, uh, in the communities where she walked the beat. That was a big deal to her. She didn't want to live way out north and not live among Black folks. She wanted me to be raised among Black folks. And I think that that's why she was beloved, because she never abused her power. In fact, she wanted to use the tools and resources she had at her disposal to uplift her community. Um, and so, but when I really become involved in anti-brutality activism and anti-prison activism, I'm embarrassed by the fact that I have a mother who's a police officer because I'm like, how is this going to read in this moment where we are rightfully so uh, hyper, you know, highly critical of the police? Who are killing us with impunity? You know, how do I participate in this move, this movement, knowing that I have a mother who is a former member at that point, she was retired of law enforcement. So I wanted to be able to tell that story finally, and to be able to tell my mother's story, not to say, oh, well, not all cops are bad, right? I'm not even trying to put forth that narrative, but to put forth the narrative of my mother and why she was drawn to that field and what it did for our family financially in particular, but how she became a certain kind of beacon in our community and a model for what it could look like if people um, who were charged with protecting us actually took that charge seriously. So that story was a, a one that I was really longing to tell and to center that hoodie chapter um, by telling my participation in, in a very important protest after Darren Wilson was not indicted by the grand jury for murdering Michael Brown. So to tell that story of the hoodie through the protest to me was um, 
a way to tell so many elements, but keep that rising action that you get as you see me participating in this protest. And and it was a very, it it was definitely um, one of my, like, oh my, like learning points too, because, you know, when I'm, when I'm reading it, it's, it's always thinking about like, where was I in this time and and, and what was I doing and, and such. And I still remember that moment when, uh, you know, didn't even get indicted and, and such, uh, being Dan Wilson. And so, um, I think this is the, this is one of the parts I love most about reading, um, and interviewing folks is that it allows me to, as I'm listening to you speak, be transported just like I'm reading the book again into another moment in time. Um, and, and it makes me think about, um, just, 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 time and space and race and all these different facets facets rather um but it also makes me think about what will be our final question here um and and this was the fun one that i that i that i asked you um in 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 our write-up um if you could resurrect any five deceased people in the world and have them in a room to ask any question you liked who would you choose what five people would you choose you know, this might sound really lame, but I am working on a project, an oral history on Black Indiana. Oh, wow. And so I'm trying to conduct a lot of interviews with people in my own family because I want to use that house at 808 East Lewis Street. Again, the house my, my dad was born in, raised in, but also the house where his parents died very violently in. I'm using that as like my nucleus, like this is the core of the oral histories and they will emanate out from there, out to other families in Fort Wayne, out even perhaps beyond that to other families in Indiana to tell this black migration story. So for me, to be honest, the people I want to interview most are members of my own family. I want to interview my grandmother, uh, whom I never got to meet. I never got to meet either of my grandmothers, actually, and that's why the book is dedicated to both of them. I want to interview them. I want to interview my grandfather as well, um, my dad's father. Um, I want to interview my aunt Jeanette. You know, she's passed away, but to hear her stories about Zora Neale Hurston and what it was like to be in Florida at that time. You know, uh, so it's. All people in my family, really. I think there was an earlier part of my career where I would have been like, oh, Nina Simone, you know, Miriam McCabe, Odetta, like all those women died right as I was writing what would become Liberated Threads. And so I was like, no, they've all passed away, like as I'm writing this and I don't get to interview them. So at that time, it would have been more like celebrity Black women, you know, but now it's really my family. I want to know more about my family history. I want to know more about our origin story, how we got here, why my family migrated to Indiana from Alabama um, and my mother's family, why they migrated from Mississippi to Ohio. You know, I've just really invested in learning more about that family history and connecting it to this larger Black Midwest story, which I feel like is not fully told, especially for people who live outside of Chicago or Detroit, or even Pittsburgh is starting to get more love in the Midwest narrative. But what about those places that were major factory towns that, you know, drew a lot of Black migrants from the South to them because they were relatively inexpensive compared to a Chicago or a Detroit. But those stories are never told. So that's my some of my latest work. And so those are the people I want to interview. And I think my last person would probably be Molly Moon, 
who is the woman who's at the center of this story that I'm telling in the new book project I'm working on, on Black women um, activist socialites who raised millions of dollars for various Black freedom movement causes. She too grew up in Mississippi, like my grandparents um, on my mother's side. She grew up in Mississippi and moved to Indiana. She lived in Gary, Indiana. She married a man from Cleveland before, and then she went to school in at Meharry Medical College, and then she moves to New York City. You know, so I'm a woman like her whose history is so intertwined with my own family's history of migration. Like, I definitely want to interview Molly Mills. And and that's yeah, I, I'm excited because I I listened, uh, I watched your talk. Um, that you gave for uh, your formal talk for the Radcliffe uh, probably about three weeks ago, and, and so I, I learned a bit about um, some of the some of the folks that you're going to be writing about, and then also on this last point where you talk about Gary, Indiana, that also made me think about a part of your book that you talked about how Southern Gary people sound, and I had a friend at FAMU named Marquise McMiller. This dude had one of the deepest voices I had ever heard and also one of the most Southern, non-Southern people that I've ever encountered in my life. It was, I, I was like, bro, where are you from? It's like, from, I, I can't even, like, I usually can mimic people. I can't even get there. Like, in this dude, so, so when you, so when you just talked about Gary, it conjured um, that particular memory uh, from your book and, um, you know, you know, Dr. Ford, it's been a pleasure. You know, we've been on originally I said 35 to 45, but I was like, I, I got, I got this, this so much. I don't want to miss any, any particular questions um, because I had much, much more, but um, in interest of your time and, and of, you know, your, your other work that you're doing, we're going to leave it at that. And so I really appreciate you for coming on uh, the program and, um, you know, once again, folks, I am your host, Adam McNeil, and today we've had the pleasure and the blessing and the opportunity on this Sunday that we are recording. Um, it's a Sunday. Um, and we've had on the program Dr. Tanisha C. Ford, an associate professor of Africana Studies and History at the University of Delaware, to talk about her amazing book just out, Dressed in Dreams, A Black Girl's Love Letter to the Power of Fashion. And so... Thanks for having me. No problem. And Dr. Ford, if, if anyone has any questions about the book or if they want to uh, inquire about where to find any of your work, you know, or is there a way that they can um, contact you? Sure. I'm always on social media. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Solista PhD. That's S-O-U-L-I-S-T-A PhD. I have a website www.tanishacfor.com. You can find all of my latest writings there, events. You can see if Dressed in Dreams is coming to your city. Um, so I'm always available on those platforms. And also you can contact me through my website to send me a direct message. And yeah, I would love to be in touch with people. I loved asking and answering uh, questions about the book, uh, being in conversation with folks. So also, I'm repped by CCMNT speakers, 
So if you want to bring Dress and Dreams to your campus, Community Center Book Club, you can always reach out to Rolisa Tutwiler and her team over there who can help make that happen. Most definitely. And um, once again, thank you to Dr. Ford for coming on the program. And, you know, in the interest of plugs, if you want to, you know, subscribe and, and, and show us how we're doing at the New Books Network's African-American Studies podcast channel, please do rate us, review us, let us know how we're doing. And then also um, subscribe on, you know, the various platforms on, on Google Podcasts, on Stitcher, on the various platforms, um, because, hey, you know, we got to get the we got to get dressing dreams out to the world among the many other books that that I'm interviewing along with the other folks at New Books in African American Studies. And so after doing that, click that subscribe and and and, and let's go buy these books. Let's let's go support our authors here, y'all. And so once again, I'm your host, Adam McNeil from New Books in African American Studies. Until next time, over and out.